Hello and welcome to the Comic Literate Podcast. This is the podcast where we do deep dives into comic books, graphic novels, Penny Dreadfuls and something else. Mangas. Mangas. I'm your gregarious host, Jamie, and with me is my other host, Ryan. And I was going to call you uh, Judicious. I'm your judicious host, (laughs) Jamie, and with me is my co-host, Ryan. Who is now gregarious by default. Yeah, you're gregarious, I'm judicious. Yeah, that's how it works. How are you? Someone's tuned in and they're like, is this like a a grammar or an adjectives podcast? What's going on here? The comic literature podcast. It's the literature part, kind of, somehow. (laughs) How does does literature work? I don't know. Let's not get into it. As we've established, you've never read a book. No, never touched. I think someone hit me with one once, and I was like, I've sworn, that was my origin story. I was like, sworn off it forever. Then someone threw a comic at me, and it didn't hurt as much. I was like, I will commit my life now to this medium. Absolutely. That's how it works. So, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I'm really good. Good? Great? My car has decided to shit out every ounce of oil in it. I mean, that's part of owning a car, isn't it? Yeah, I fucking a. Well, certainly owning an old one, yeah. And in this day, in this economy... Well, yeah, absolutely. I say that when I don't fully understand the economics of a situation. I just go, yeah, in this economy. <laughs> and normally people go, yeah, I know, right? I've seen you do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You've been around me when, we've, when, when it's happened, yeah. Um, so this week we are, you've seen from the title already, it's a slightly different one. Um, we, in the sense that we're doing a comic book adaptation of an existing piece of literature. Yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, that's uh, at closest. I think maybe League of Extraordinary General was based on literary characters. Yeah. But this is the first one of that kind. This is a very, this is an attempt, a page for page adaptation of a novel. And we're also going to be doing a little extra afterwards. So maybe just in case, well, there'll be time codes in the description. But just very quickly, as a rough rundown. They don't need to know. <laughs> it will all be a surprise. Yeah, let's just, there. Yeah, let's jazz, baby. Go to the time codes if you want to check. Yeah, They'll be there. It. It's jazz. But if, you want, if you want to be a, a gregarious rebel and just say, fuck the time codes, I'm just going to listen. All the way uh, through. Yeah. Carefree. Start to finish. Da- you live dangerously. Live dangerously. You have no idea what we're going to talk about, except you've seen the title, because you have to when you download the episode. So, you know when we have a conversation? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, fucking bellows. I don't know. I don't. I saw. I will a, fight you. <laughs> I saw an open goal. I was like, go on, have a have a kick. Um. Yeah. No. Yeah. Unfortunately, I for enjoy one of our us, conversations. Which, which ones are you talking about specifically? When we talk about like the board, like the admin stuff of the podcast, and like how many downloads the last episode got, got mm. and stuff like that. Mm. The thing that I've started doing recently that really that like brings me a lot of joy is imagining complexly what people are doing while they're listening to Comic Literate. Mm. So I'm like, oh, I wonder if somebody's like had a bad day at work and then they just tune into Comic Literate expecting a really nice time and it's me swearing about Spider-Man for half an hour. Should we mention, should we refer back to that at all? I mean, I'm, I'm going to touch, I'm going to touch back on no, it at the no, end. No, so. no, no spoilers. No spoilers for the end of the podcast. We keep it a secret. You think you're going to get to the end, they're going to go, oh, I thought it was going to be something exciting. <laughs> by, by the way, James, it's just more No ranting. spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. For someone who has famously not cared about spoilers... <laughs> But someone who I had to explain <laughs> why spoilers are bad to. <laughs> I can be a hypocrite. Imagine okay? if someone had spoiled Gatsby for, before you read it. Imagine. I mean, I don't. You wouldn't have got the same impact from the first reading. Yeah, so it would spoil the podcast. Okay, yeah, that's what I say. I'm going to the hypocrite for going the other side. <laughs> the one time I'm like, nah, let's get into it. And you're like, no, no, I suddenly care about spoilers now. 
So, uh, we're both being hypocrites. So much fun. I mean, we, we'll, we'll get into our own biases as we go along as well. But no, I like to imagine what people are up to while they're listening to the podcast. Mm. So if you could just very quickly pause the podcast, open up your email client and send an email to comicliterate.gmail.com and just tell me what you're doing while you're listening to today's episode. I just want to know. Like, I'm just really intrigued as to what you're up to while you're listening. That is, I, I would also like to hear it because the example you gave is pretty much what I strive for in any of this. It's not even necessarily someone's having a bad day, but someone just needs like a bit of space filled where they just don't want to think about their own thoughts for a bit. Because that's why I consume content. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you've been in your head a bit and you go, you know what? I just don't want to think They just want to munch bit. through some content. Exactly. And podcasts, especially when you're doing the other stuff um when we start youtube videos that someone can just you know put it on and they're just kind of taking it in and enjoying it while also maybe doing other stuff as well because yeah. that is the modern i mean i'm under no illusions that what we're producing is not bloody scorsese or bloody tarantino it's yeah, like absolutely like when scorsese was kicking off about the irishman he was like please watch it on the tv just because it's on streaming doesn't mean you can watch it on your phone and then a bunch of people started putting on like their Tom Toms and GPSs Absolutely, and yeah. watches. And they were like, loving the film, Scorsese. It's <laughs> 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 they're, they're watching it on a pregnancy test. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Have you seen that? Doom yeah, running Doom, on a pregnancy yeah. test. So, awesome, yeah. So cool. But so I, I'm under no illusion that we're like that at all. Like if you're half paying attention, as long as we're entertaining you somewhat, that's a win in, yeah. in our books. If you're enjoying well, but I just want to know what you're doing. Well, like what we're guiding mm. you through, what boring life task you're doing. Maybe you're having a beautiful walk in the woods. Maybe your wife's just left you. I don't know, but I want to hear about it. Maybe your wife left you because you spend too much time in the woods. <laughs> and in, in England, we call that cottaging. Yeah. So comicliterate at cottaging.com. <laughs> <laughs> so comicliterate at gmail.com. Just exactly. let us know. So today we are talking about somebody very, very dear to me. Mm. Um, this writer, more than I think maybe any other writer, has been a constant companion to me since I was a schoolboy. Um, and so I'm very, very passionate about his work. Today, of course, we're talking about the late, great Terry Pratchett. And specifically, a comic book adaptation of one of his, I, I mean, I, one of his best books, one of his most well-known books. I, no. I don't know, so I'm asking. So, yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's from his best-known series. Mm. Um, so Terry Pratchett started writing a series of fantasy novels called the Discworld series. Um, and he started with The Color of Magic which is about the magical university in a fictional city called Ankh-Morpork. Um, but as he was fleshing out this city of Ankh-Morpork and the world around it, he needed a colourful cast of characters. And one of, these, one of the sets of characters that he'll write about is the City Watch. And so there are distinct sets of novels within the Discworld series. Mm. There are the novels about Unseen University. There are the novels about the witches. There are the novels about death. And there are the novels about the City Watch. Um, Sam Vimes is the central character in the City Watch. And what you tend to find is that if you are introduced to a character who's quite central to the book and they are wearing a hat, mm. they are in some way a mouthpiece for Pratchett. Right. Terry, Ter Terry Pratchett had this very connected philosophy on life. And he gave voice to that through these very specific mouthpiece, mouthpiece characters in his books. Um, so the character that we're talking about, we're going to be talking about a lot today is Sam Vimes, mm. who was a working class hero. Um, he was definitely where 
Pratchett would go to voice some of his more heavy political opinions. Um, when he when when he was talking through the mouthpiece of death, he was really talking about his more existential feelings, mm. and he was talking about his feelings on life and death. Terry Pratchett had a very connected philosophy about death. Mm. When yeah, in, in later life, when Pratchett was losing his ability to write, he became a very ardent advocate for euthanasia mm. and end of life. Um, but he was a very very intelligent, very thoughtful man who wrote these very silly books, which he only have to scratch a little bit under the surface of to fight this greater connected philosophy and essentially a manifesto on life by a very clever and interesting man mm. um, which is the reason that people like neil gaiman who is one of our generation's possibly best fantasy writers loved working with him and he's cited as he's cited as an influence by all of these great writers and kind of weirdly comic book writers mm who love Pratchett and love his work. And I think it's because a lot of us grew up with him. His novels were ostensibly for adults and they were for adults, but because of how colorful the covers were and the fact that they were often sold in, in, in quite affordable paperbacks and they were everywhere, people bought them for their kids. And so we were reading these novels as children and they have these really heavy adult themes and so that might be one of the things that I love so much about it is it's the first adult fiction I ever really got my hands on. Mm. Um, so yeah, Terry Pratchett was a really interesting bloke. If you've never read a Pratchett novel, I probably wouldn't start with the one we're talking about today, well, weirdly. I was going to propose something in that regard. And genuinely, I don't know how you're going to react, so we'll see how what you think of this. Yeah, I think in talking about this title today, so specifically, I... I can't remember if we've mentioned it or not. It's a comic adaptation of Guards, Guards, which came out in the 80s. Yeah. But this adaptation was made in the year 2000. Yeah. Um, so specifically, I think we should focus mainly on the adaptation. Oh, yeah, 100%. Rather than going into or spoiling any of the story of Guards, Guards. And the reason yeah. for that, I think, is the consensus we have both kind of come to is this is not a good adaptation. No, and not that's, at all. But I think that's a very common thing with people who've read the original source text for any yeah, across yeah. any mediums. But this is also coming from me, who's not read the original or any Pratchett. Yeah, I, so I could tell this was a bad adaptation because I thought if this is this, he would not be as successful as he was. No, and you're absolutely right. And and there's there's certain things that have been lifted out of the comic book that are present in the novel, not in terms of story beats. Um, that I'll get into in a bit. And mm. I think that constitutes part of the reason that I don't think this was a successful adaptation. Yeah. And to be quite frank with you, I'm a lifelong Pratchett fan. Mm. If you look around, I mean, there's huge bookshelves here. If you look on those bookshelves, you will find a handful of signed first editions of Pratchett novels that mean a lot to me. I didn't know these adaptations existed. Right. So as a, as, as a community of Pratchett fans, and when I say a community... I'm in secondhand bookshops owned by Pratchett fans being like, have you got a first edition of Mort that's got a better signature, please? Mm. Like, I'm that nerd. We're not talking about this. Yeah, it and definitely so, didn't take off. Yeah, this never became the medium that you would ingest these stories in, in the same way that A Game of Thrones became the main way that people absorbed A Song of Ice and Fire, or the Lord of the Rings films kind of became more popular than the Lord of the Rings books. Mm. I um, think there might be an element of this, like with a lot of a lot of uh, 
franchises and works where, and this bodes very well for us and what we do, but there's a lot of like, hey, there's something else. Let's make a comic out of it. And it's literally just like, let's just commission someone and the the name is already recognizable. So we'll get a bit of money. We'll make a bit of profit. I think that's unfortunately the the dull capitalist reality of it. And there have been, there has been a conversation that's been happening culturally for the past 20 or 30 years as to how do we adapt Pratchett? And the BBC have had a few pops at it and never really gotten anywhere. And the latest one wasn't received well, was it? No, no, they're never, they're never very good. Mm. And this is the thing. I don't think anybody has ever really found a way to adapt Pratchett. And I think a big part of it is that one of the things that's so special about Pratchett and his work is his authorial voice. And so when you read, when you, sometimes when you're reading a novel and you're reading a narrative, the author isn't really there like there there is there is stuff happening and you've got a first person narration and the author is not isn't present mm. whereas pratchett adopts a third person narrative perspective um so it's not i do this it's the character does this mm. if that makes sense yeah yeah and he has a very very strong presence as a narrator and he is fucking hilarious mm. His little narratorial asides and the way he describes things is two-thirds of the charm of a Pratchett novel. And I think the problem is when you put that into a visual medium like a comic book or a TV show, inherently you just have to put that on the screen. And so when, you know, when when Kara is sat in the dwarf's house and he's too big for it, mm. that is just a panel and it is an image. Whereas in the in the book, Pratchett describes that in a really hilarious way. Yeah. And there's a funny way that he describes things and he has a gorgeous turn of phrase. He's a very he he gives you this very witty narrator. And as soon as you adapt to Pratchett, you just take that straight out of the equation. And I think that's one of the things that fell really flat for me in this comic book. Mm. Is that actually Pratchett as a narrator is almost a character in his books, and you're missing that in the comic. Yeah. I think I'm coming from a completely different spot. Again, like we keep saying, I've, I've not touched this at all. This is kind of the flip reverse of when we do the superhero ones, where I'm the knowledgeable one on that and you're coming in blind, where this is the opposite for us. Um, I, my opinion was, and not, not knowing his narrative style of his actual written books, yeah. I feel like that this specific adaptation makes some mistakes that if they were remedi- remedied, could uh, could be a, a better presentation of his work. Now, I, again, that's coming from someone who's not read it, but I feel there's specific mistakes here which we're going to get into. So, a game that we play when we do comic books I is... Was, I think I was literally going to do this as well, but go on. Jamie's What the Fuck moments, where it's like, what are the things that I look at? Like, the, t- the T-Rex in Batman's Cave. Yeah. Are there any characters you'd like to query with me? Well, actually, sorry. What I was going to what I was going to say was the um, I was going to do the quick recommendation oh, of the story. Go yeah. for it. Just as, as I said, we're not getting properly into story, but just to give people if they're, yeah. you, if they're like me and they haven't read this at all, just so you get an idea of what what story we're talking about. So it's generally about it's as Jamie mentioned earlier. They are the the night watch, the night watch. Well, the city guard, city guard, city watch, city watch. Um, so we're kind of following them in a 
city uh monk something Ank- Ankh-Morpork. Ankh-Morpork. um it's a city that's kind of set i would say in like a pre-technology time it's yep. um very i don't know what 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 historical era would you equate it to i would say it's most similar to dickensian london yes sure yeah and it's the general story we're following is we're following a group of baddies, for lack of a better term, a kind of secret organization yeah. who want to install their own leader. Yeah. Um, the place is famously secular. There's no kings, no religious. Um, it's, it's government run, essentially. It's a republic. Republic. And they want to install a king, but they it's obviously one that they will control and yeah. have power and everything. And the way they do that is they want to bring in a dragon for someone to slay and yeah. become kind of a King Arthur type role. Yeah. Um, that's as much I think we want to get into. And so when we mention characters, we'll say either they're City Watch or they're secret organization or whatever. Well, could, let's do Ryan's what the fuck moments. Is there anything that you were just like, what the fuck is going on here that you'd like to question with me? That I might be able to give you a little bit of context for as a non-Pratchett fan. So what's interesting is it all really came together and made sense by the end yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah and but the problem is i can't kind of go further without kind of getting into like my first kind of issue with this adaptation yeah it it definitely went too quickly yeah um it, when i looked at the page count i was like that's about like five maybe six issues yeah and i thought for a novel like that Not might a be a bit much but then i thought well if it's a written novel maybe you're saving some time by showing rather than telling with because you have the visual medium and and again pratchett as a narrator is a very present narrator and so there's a lot of verbose language i'm looking at the standard corgi books edition from the mid 80s of the novel and it's 309 pages yeah so the so pr- a relatively short novel yeah but the problem is in only those um about 140 comic book pages um, I think it was released as just one trade paper. Yeah, I don't yeah, think it was yeah. releasing issues or anything. But in what in the short time, it gets into quite a bit of the origin of Kara. And by quite a bit, so a character's name is Kara. Uh, he's uh, raised by dwarves and he goes off and joins the Sea Watch when he finds out he's... It's kind of an elf situation. Yeah. He finds out he's adopted because he's not a dwarf. <laughs> just thinks he's the tallest dwarf or something. So they spend a couple of pages on him there doing that. And I think, okay, here we go. He's the main character. And then he kind of becomes a b-side character uh for the rest of it and that was a bit confusing and i think that's the reason it's confusing i think it's because they didn't focus enough on the main guy vimes is it so the main guy vimes he has a very short quick introduction to the point where it was only in the second half of the story when i went oh this guy's like a main character but because he compared to character introduction it was so minimal. I thought he was just a side character and Carrot was the main. And then they swap importance as it goes on. Yeah. And I think even reading it without reading the original novel, I could tell, oh, they've not had enough. They had to put Carrot stuff in because that's more important to the end. But they haven't introduced Vimes properly because he has more in the end anyway. So this is where I can elucidate the situation for you. Mm. Kara is a brand new character for Guards Guards. Right. He's a character that they brought in because they needed a big guy with a sword that his parents gave him that would be king, right? Yeah. Vimes is a character that as a Pratchett fan, you would be expected to know who Vimes is. Right. You're going if you're going into a Discworld novel called Guards Guards, 
you are almost waiting for Vimes to appear because right. he is your protagonist. So yeah, coming from someone who didn't know any of this, and again, the, the same problem you've had with superhero ones, I I don't feel this this comic did enough to tell me this is the main character. And you know what? I didn't I didn't even notice that. Again, I've read the novel, mm. so I was familiar with Kara already. Mm. And yeah, no, that that and that is a really common convention of Pratchett novels, right? And so there is a there is one called Sorcery, which is a really early one, um, and it's a Rincewind novel. Rincewind is the wizard that we tend to follow when we're in the Unseen Academy, right? Um, he was kind of Pratchett's first protagonist, um, but it's called Sorcery, and it's about a sorcerer who turns up and takes over the university as a boy prodigy. Mm. But really, it's a Rincewind novel, right? Right, and when you are reading Mort. Mort is the title character, and the book is ostensibly about Mort, but actually it's a death novel, and right. death is our protagonist. And so, yeah, that's a really common thing in Pratchett's novels, hmm. where he will give you a protagonist for that novel, but really they're secondary to his main protagonist from that chunk of the series. Hmm. And that's just a really common thing that he does in his books. And you know, I've only just clocked that now that you've talked about it. Mm, and that's this is this is again why I keep coming back to when we do the super stuff. Why I like having your opinion, yeah. not knowing the stuff, because I want that. What is the experience I'm not having by having information affecting my my enjoyment of the title? So Vimes, man, like yeah, if if you're a Pratchett fan, you'd be really familiar with Vimes, and Vimes is kind of a fan favorite because he's what be a bit of, a bit of a working class hero. I definitely got that. Like by the end, I definitely got the character, and yeah. uh, and that's why I realized upon oh, he's the main character because <laughs> he was the driving force, the protagonist, the um, the no nonsense character in, in with all the fantastical stuff going around. He's just like he's the guy's like let's just get on with it and let's just like do our job and get on with it. And of. what's so interesting is that all of um pratchett's protagonists are a little bit like that mm. so death is obviously very no nonsense because mm. there's a running joke that death doesn't feel human emotions because he doesn't have the glands for it and that's how he describes it he's like i think you need glands for that and i don't have them mm. and then rincewind although he's a wizard he's a wizard who can't do any magic <laughs> right like rincewind is a completely inept wizard and they're like well how do you know you're a wizard then if you can't do magic and he's like well i've got a pointy hat like, I'm definitely a wizard. But so Rincewind, even though he is like in the thick of Unseen University um, and magical shit is happening all around him all the time, he's very no-nonsense as well. Right. And that is just a feature of... Pr Pratchett's protagonists are kind of all self-insert characters to a degree, as mm. I said. And so when you're, when you're dealing with Vimes, you are dealing with Pratchett's very pragmatic side. Right. Um, you asked me earlier from what my what the fuck moment yeah, is. Yeah, go on. Give me some mine what the fuck is, moments. Mine is more of a visual. So yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the style of art, and I think we're going to go touch on this a bit because the arts, like, you... I feel duty-bound mm. having dunked on that Spider-Man art so much last week. Which, little, little, little tidbit, we'll touch on again later. Now that we're talking about something that I was supposed to like... The art style is fucking all over the place. Yeah, so I've got basically like a prime example of that, which I'm mm. just going to show Jamie here. If you read the comic, you'll find probably a few examples like this, but the difference in styles of these two characters in the same panel. Yep, I hear it. I've screenshotted something similar. Like, but just the the um, the the texture, like uh, the the proportions. Yep, yeah, no, they're all it's all over the place. And it's isn't not it? that either one or is 
bad, but they're just so different. They're just from completely each other. different. Yeah. They're both supposed to be human. Mm. And again, if you, if you're not a Pratchett fan, pull up just Google Terry Pratchett cover art, and you will see that very disproportioned kind of schlocky um, illustrative design that they used on the front of the books. Hmm. Some of the comic panels look like that, and then some of them have quite straight photorealistic illustration, don't yeah. they? But they'll put these two characters that have two completely different art styles in the same panel together, mm. and it is just like, what the fuck? The, there's one character that I was really expecting you to be like, what is going on there, Jamie? And you've not mentioned him. Who Who do you think that is? The librarian. See, I got that immediately. What What I felt weird about that is that it's it's one of those things where sometimes like a fantastical text like this will just have one fantastical element. Yeah. And then, I mean, the main story is about dragons and everything anyway. Yeah. But it's normally with this type of text, if you think about like Hellboy, uh, Del Toro's Hellboy or Star Wars Canteen or whatever, it's like, yeah. here's this weird world and it's like a menagerie of all different aliens or monsters or whatever. And in this, the only thing that was weird is he's introduced with an explanation. Yeah. So I wasn't like what's that all about but as the as it went on even more towards the end and then i saw the it's it's a, a librarian who turned himself into orangutan basically <laughs> and didn't want to turn himself back he was like this is actually fine um he likes it that's like quirky i enjoyed like it was like a quirky bit i was like oh that's fun it's just weird that it was one extreme level of magic yeah and then and then again just dragons but then that's it like so if it wasn't for the dragons and the orangutan, you would be forgiven for thinking there's no magic in this. Yeah. And that's this, it's a stark contrast from like, guy turned into orangutan and barely any magic <laughs> anywhere else. That's so it. So the, and again, again, like deep disc world lore, the guard series, so the novels about Vimes tend to be a little bit lighter on the magic. Right. If we were reading Sorcery or The Color of Magic, or even the wit, the witches' books are a bit different, um, because the witches have a more kind of earthy, pragmatic magic than the wizards. Mm. The wizards are all about conjuration, whereas the witches have, you know, like if you think of like druidical magic, so like earth magic, like right. at, like if you think about magic in pagan lore or early Celtic well, hang mythology, on, hang on, hang on. what kind of magic does Alan Moore do? Just for my point of my frame of reference, I think if Alan Moore did magic, it would be crunchy druidy magic. It wouldn't yeah. be like like a bird in his beard kind of. Yeah, yeah. So the witches are they're magical, they're very magical, and they're much more powerful than the wizards. Hmm. Um, but they have a covenant, and they live in cottages, and they're funny old spinsters. Um, and so their magic is a bit more grounded and a bit more crunchy and earthy, whereas the um the guys in the unseen university think harry potter right but they've all gotten a bit old and fat and lazy and so it's like uh we'll just like you know like the wizards all smoke roll-ups right <laughs> they're all a bit like oh fuck it i'm just done <laughs> the yeah. wizards are great um but yeah no and and again it's one of those things that for a fantasy book it is quite grounded isn't it mm. i feel like they only kept in the orangutan because because it is a not necessarily a big part but i wouldn't necessarily say an integral part of the story i think as an adaptation one of the things i would maybe change is and i don't know how much issue pratchett fans would take with this but if you took out the orangutan i think the tone would be a bit more 
concentrated, a bit more directed, you know? I imagine he's only there because he is it's not just this novel that we see him in. Right. So he's he, a beloved character. Yeah. Um, so he will turn up the actual wizards from the university don't turn up that often. Hmm. Often when characters interact with the university, it's the librarian that they go and see. Right. And all he says is, ook. <laughs> hmm. And he and might, charades. You will, the charades were, yeah, the charades are how he communicates. So he'll just say ook and do charades at people. Hmm. Um, I agree with you that actually for this adaptation, this, this isn't for me. I feel like if they were doing a film adaptation of this, I think they would take the orangutan out of this one and then if they did a later one where he's more integral, yeah. they're like, we'll just introduce him in that one. Yeah, like, 100%. And, 100%. Then, and then it becomes one of those tidbits like the MCU and Marvel comics where it's like, actually, you know, in the comics, Hank Pym created Ultron, but in the MCU, Hank Pym hadn't been invented yet. So yeah. introduced, so they, so Tony Stark invented, you know, it'd be one of those situations. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I, and I, I honestly think that Pratchett fans are a bit more chilled out than MCU fans, probably because they're a bit older. I ear towards, I'm actually quite young. Mm. To be as devoted to Pratchett as I am, I think he'd kind he kind of fell out of fashion at some point. So Pratchett novels, I'm guessing that would appeal to young adults in the during the 80s. Is that yeah, the right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Whereas Marvel is, I mean, which period of Marvel or DC yeah. or superheroes or anything? Yeah. So I mean, he kept writing them until the late noughties, um, and some of the best stuff happened in the nineties. Um, I was actually chatting with somebody recently who was just generally a fantasy fan, but not a big Pratchett nerd. And they were saying that they actually really prefer later Pratchett because he calmed down with the world building a bit. Mm. He didn't need to do as much world building in each novel because Ang Morpork was already very well established. And so the later ones are actually a bit of an easier read to some regard mm. than the earlier ones because he's not doing the heavy lifting of establishing this world. Like right. I could talk to you about the lore of Great A2 in for a long time hmm. i think back to like when i was going to what i think the issues are with this adaptation yeah. i think if it spent a lot more time a lot more time changing the pace of this because the pacing really badly paced yeah the pacing it gets to the point where i said they spend a bit of time introducing carrot and giving all these pages to him and then when you get to like important stuff later on it's like half a page is a scene yeah and that's especially bad for comics because you have parts where a scene is like a half or two-thirds of a page and then the scene is changed like for the mm. last third yeah, yeah and that pacing comics very traditionally a page is a scene or yeah, a page yeah. is like a scene is an x number of pages but it fills each page yeah, yeah, yeah. you add more or you make a panel bigger so that it tidies up yeah, yeah 100%. this did not do that at no. all and again, you had these longer parts with introduction at the beginning, uh, the longer introduction with the secret society. Yeah. But the problem with them, I found, was is you got across very quickly what it was. With the, the there was a great joke with the the passwords for the getting into the place. Very nice joke. Um, that but, was lifted straight from the book. Exactly. And I I have no doubt. Even when I was reading it, I thought the best bits are like the, yeah oh, the. I'd say all the dialogue must have been lifted out I would hazard a guess it was relatively close yeah mm. but then once you're in that part with the secret society a lot of those panels don't have background yeah and yeah. admittedly a lot of it is filled with people in hooded robes yeah so it's there's only a little bit of background at the back but what 
I got them while reading is I, I didn't get the sense of location, even though I knew if you asked me, I'd be like, well, they're in this secret meeting place. Yeah. But it need, I feel like it needed that bit of like, oh, it's a it's an underground room or it's like a like stone temple kind of thing with candles or a little bit like that. And it's only stuff I never would have noticed this. I barely notice it, as we've said before, with, you know, art and story. Yeah. If I'm paying attention to the story, then the art's not really picking for me. But the art here, it kind of drew me a little bit out. And it almost kind of was like harder to pay attention to what was going on with the with the the hooded society or whoever they are. Yeah. So I got the bits about like, hey, we need to install our own king or whatever. But then as soon as they start to, started talking about the magic and like, we need magic bits and throw it in the cauldron and I've got this book here. I actually had to finish it and then go back and reread some the beginning and then that was more in context for me later on so when yeah. going back i was like ah there's the book and there's someone bringing the book and he's that guy from the other part and little things like that yeah absolutely i think the art um i think the art judging by the front cover of your issue of guards guards here your your novel of guards guards right yeah. here um it does I think it's very obviously inspired by, mm. and I think they were more going for a in a inspired art style, but not as much one that was effective visual storyteller for comics. Yeah, and the cover art for Pratchett books is iconic. So I have first editions of Pratchett novels, mm. and all they did was take the cover art from the first from the hardback edition yep and stretch it to fit around a whole paperback right and so it was only after pratchett's death when they started doing these really fancy expensive hardback covers that you could get a pratchett book that didn't have this art on it right and they were all done by the same bloke a chap called josh kirkby mm. and i would like to reference him here because pratchett novels look gorgeous um, and so it's a very, very distinctive art style that they had to try and kind of get close to, but also then make manageable for a comic book. Mm. Because this does not work on a comic book. Yes, exactly. So and, it just doesn't. And while we're at it, we probably should give a mention as well. The This novel or this comic book was adapted by Stephen Briggs, yeah. who I think literally kind of arranged it all yeah. and illustrated by Graham Higgins. I think the issue here is, again, it's, also, I, can I correct something? Sure. You mentioned that it was published in 2008. No, 2000. That's not right. Oh, okay. They're from 92 and 93. Oh, the comic is? The comics are, yeah. Oh. What happened is an omnibus edition was put together in the 2000s. Ah, right. Fair. So this would have been published as four... So it was four books published separately, four comic books pu published separately in the early 90s, and then they put them all together as one big edition in the noughties. Right. That's, yeah. That's so the, these came out in 92 to 93. So... Right around the time we were born. Fair, fair enough. Well, definitely the, the art style looks that way. It kind yeah, of doesn't it? It looks a bit I think this is a I think this is a British illustration yeah. thing. It kind of reminds me a bit of like spitting image. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. And the newspaper comics, that kind of style. Caricature. Yes, exactly. We, and we had a real relationship with caricature and cartoon like the the cartoonist and caricatures in Britain at the time. Yeah, I think that's a really valid mm. point, actually. It, it looks a certain way, doesn't it? Yeah. And having had a go at a bit of the art, there are still parts of the art which I did like. Really? And I don't know. So, like, more, not necessarily in the specific art, but 
there was some clever layout. So like the bit where Vimes is standing in it's like a greenhouse with the the lady, lady something. Yeah, Lady Moot. Yeah. Um there's a bit where it's clear sky and the greenhouse and then the dragon flies overhead and then he looks up and there's nothing. Yeah. So like little layouts like that. I think if it was a normal comic, I'd be like, well, that's the bare minimum. But with this one having so many problems when there was like a bit that worked, I was like, oh, that's good. Mm. And it highlighted a bit more for me. I was really sad that this might actually put you off ever reading a Pratchett novel with me. Well, I know, again, like I knew I could tell they was not a great adaptation. Yeah. And I could tell that they weren't able to get enough in it. There were things happening at some point so quickly and I kind of imagine, like, well, if this was written down, I think it'd take a bit more time to, like, explain actions and stuff. I wondered what you thought of the dialogue. And I'd like to know, because Pratchett's dialogue is actually really natural mm. and breathes really well on the page. But it felt a bit more stilted to me in the speech bubbles. And so I wondered what you thought of the quality of the dialogue, or if, it, if you even noticed it. So the dialogue came across to me a bit like, in the same way that the art is a bit caricature style yeah the dialogue came across to me a bit parody yeah and yeah, that's, yeah and that's not necessarily a criticism or or a compliment either but in this the what they were going for felt to me a bit like a bit of monty python life of brian yeah. kind of style especially for the setting yeah um it felt and i bet that felt intentional anyway and that is absolutely how um project novels rate imagine monty python doing lord of the rings yeah exactly yeah and uh, that's how they feel it's holy grail yeah exactly and they and it's really similar vibe to douglas adams mm. if you're familiar with douglas adams hitchhiker hitchhiker's guide yeah um yeah they they i kind of group them together really they come from a really similar stable mm. what was good about that's the i think if the if the comic had just been parody um life of brian holy grail-esque like is an adventure about dragons and whatevers then i think it would have been a bit more boring but because it was that parody dialogue with a realism of like bureaucrats and essentially like underpaid police and jokes that go a bit intelligent for like for this small comedic part yeah. so the parody dialogue in the most of it felt like a, a vehicle for the rest of the things to shine so like when you've got like someone like oh hey the guards are here and chase off this scallywag or whatever and then like later they're talking about like our kettle broke and we can't afford a new one like that kind of realism compared with that parody dialogue i think was a good it was a good contrast is probably the best way to describe it and there's a lot of this in pratchett so in another book pratchett gives this really cutting uh critique of consumer goods through vimes mm. um so essentially vimes says a man who could afford 50 dollars had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years time while the poor man who could only afford boots would have to spend a hundred dollars on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet I've actually seen that quote used as example of um, the tax on being poor. Yeah, and and this is it. And so, um, I I what the quote I've just quoted I pulled up online, and it is not a direct quote. That's mm. not accurate because there's a joke about um, the boots having soles that made out of cardboard and they disintegrated, right? Right. Um, but that that's an economic principle about buying more higher quality consumer goods and. 
Pratchett kind of takes that principle and turns it into a joke about Vimes and his cheap boots and the fact that he could feel he was walking through the shades, which is a part of like part of Ag Morpork. Yeah. And the fact that he could feel where he was in Morpork based on the texture of the cobbles because he was always wearing the cheap boots because mm. he couldn't afford to buy a good pair. And so you think about it and it's like, oh, silly. You're right. Oh, the guards are here. Oh, there's dragons. But then every once in a while you'll read something and go, fuck, he's right. Mm. And that's the thing. And I think this is Pratchett. I mean, if you, if for our American listeners, you'll probably be familiar with Monty Python. What you he's might. My, he's my favorite comedian. <laughs> <laughs> But what I think an American probably wouldn't understand, and maybe even a much younger British person than us wouldn't understand. Oh, yeah. This generation, yeah. Is that Monty Python existed within a kind of era of British comedy that was very knowing. So we had Monty Python, yes, but we also had Spitting Image and Not the Nine O'Clock News. And then in novels, there was Pratchett and, Bright- and Douglas Adams. British humour in, le- in the kind of mid-80s to mid-90s had its own distinct flavour. And this fits in with that. Mm. And it's like, if you're an American and you've never experienced British humor from that era, go watch some Bottom and Mm. some Not the Nine O'Clock News and some Spitting Image, read a Douglas Adams book, read a Pratchett novel. And it is a treasure trove of really knowing social commentary disguised as comedy. I would say as a very rough description of like an era, I think it's intelligent people being silly and then not helping themselves but to be intelligent within the silliness yeah yeah absolutely Mm. yeah i mean you look at someone like rowan atkinson Mm. who's a highly intelligent man doing not the nine o'clock news but he's also very funny looking and very silly you're so right you're so right there's a couple of the bits reminded me a bit of and i i think i'm right probably saying that this is patcher was probably an influence on george rr martin and the reason i say that is because the the storyline about the secret society installing their own king yeah is for one thing it stuck out to me it's like that's a bit american foreign policy (laughs) but it's also that thing of like similar with game of thrones it's look at this fantastical medieval setting and also this political subplot like this really stark political thing going on in the background which is very true to real life even today yeah absolutely and and uh, and yeah and good fantasy i think always should be turning an eye towards the issues of the world not on like this societal level like oh you're at your responsibility if you write fantasy to educate us Hmm. but fantasy's best when it's rooted in something real Mm. and so if you can have a big silly fantasy that then goes yeah but politics mate it's a bit fucked up yeah that's the most compelling to me and and pratchett toes that line beautifully in all of his novels it could have been simplified so easily i mean if this comic wasn't if this comic existed by itself and wasn't an adaptation of pratchett it could have gone the route of like oh there's an evil wizard and because he's evil he's he's summoned a dragon and someone has to fight and kill the dragon yeah but because it's Pratchett, it's got that extra level of like, they're trying to install their own leader and that actually might backfire on them because that's not how things work kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and like how the townsfolk are immediately like, you know, what, I'm actually pro-royalty now. <laughs> like that kind of sudden change of, um, what do you call it? Societal opinion. Change of mood. Change of, yeah, like everyone's just like oh actually no this isn't as bad as when we revolted against it decades ago or centuries ago yeah um so yeah it can't help it but there is a simplified version that could have been told without any of the magic yeah 
for lack of a better term, because it'd still be summoning dragons. And I agree that this is a really unsuccessful adaptation. Mm. There's so much wrong with it. And when you were talking about pace earlier, I want to go back to it, because yep. I agree with you that it was paced really badly and there were chunks missing. Yes, it, it felt like that as well. I there literally were... went back a page. I was like, hang on, what? Did I miss something? It's like, <laughs> no, it's just changed. Like the relationship between Vimes and the dragon lady mm. happens quite slowly and organically in the book. Whereas there is a point, there is a point in the in the comic book where she's just like, "Oh, I brought you back to my house, so now you live here, right?" Yeah, <laughs> and that and that does happen, and he does end up in a relationship with her in the novel, but it happens really organically, and you watch them have these really fun interactions where they're kind of forced to spend time together, and they really get to know each other, mm. and that doesn't happen here because they don't have space for it. But that's one of the things that makes the novel so charming. I feel like for having not known that. Yeah. The relationship between Vimes and the Dragon Lady was actually the most organically paced part of it. <laughs> well, there we go. Compared to the rest yeah. of it. That felt the most of like, oh, they're at least actually telling time. They're taking time to tell this story a bit. Whereas everyone else was just like, right, these guys are all best friends now. Like, despite one of them being brand new. So bear in mind then, I mean, that's more of a cutting indictment of the book than anything else is actually the bit that I picked out as an example of the comic book not being as paced as well as the novel mm. is the one bit that made a little bit of sense to you. Imagine that everywhere else and worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and admittedly, Pratchett novels tend to be paced quite quickly. He doesn't use chapter breaks. Right. That's interesting. It's just one big story. Sometimes he'll use three little dots, mm. three asterisks, like in the center of the page indented that will guide you between two scenes. But there are other times where one person is talking in one scene and then somebody in another scene completely on the other side of Ank Warpork will follow on from them and you'll have to mm. go, wait a minute, is that somebody? Oh, that isn't somebody new talking. Right. And then Pratchett as the narrator will go, by the way, I used a sharp cut there, um, which is mm. something from film and I thought it might work in the book. And you're like, oh, you lovable scamp. <laughs> and what I was saying earlier about there, it could make a good at adaptation of this. Yeah. I think it, it, at a minimum, if you doubled the page numbers, you could tell a more in-depth story and use the visual storytelling to cut some of the narrative or replace some of the narrative. I feel like this there is a possible good comic book adaptation of Pratchett, there, but yeah. you need you need to invest in like it's gonna be two hundred to three hundred pages, but it's and it's gonna be slower paced and the character's gonna build organically. If a character is introduced in a previous novel that we're not doing in the comic, then you have to add a little bit of an introduction. Yeah. Even just a character being like, by the way, this is Vimes. He's head of the the house or whatever. And a, a, li a little bit of um, the thing we always hate that I can't remember the word for right exposition. now. Exposition? Yeah, a little bit of exposition. Yeah. Occasionally, a little bit of exposition just gets you where you need to go, doesn't it? And you know what? With a style like this, the style of the tone and the story... I feel like you could have some pages of exposition because actually it does in the comic that it has little panels of and they're lifted stuff. from the book. Yeah. And aren't they beautifully written? So you could do more of those. Mm. Um, you could do more of those. And I think it would fit. It's not like meant to be like a, a dry, like it's not like, like say pride of Baghdad when we did that. Yeah. If they're like a, by the way, the head of the pride, he was actually in the wild for a bit. And now he's now it's in. And that's why he feels the way he feels like it. it that would stick out. Yeah. quite sorely whereas in this there is an element of like again monty python where they would just like take a break and just take a second just be like he is the king and his name is this and he's famous for whatever and yeah there's space for that 
Um, I think it's interesting that he wasn't particularly involved in this adaptation. Um, oh, yeah. Because, so I've read, and it's something I really want to talk about on the podcast, weirdly, is an adaptation of a George R. R. Martin short story set in Westeros. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at the original novel behind you. It's three short stories that were published in magazines. So each of them about 50 pages long. And they took the first one and turned it into a full-length comic book. So the comic book is actually a little bit longer than the original story in terms of page length. Um, and it's really good. It's a really great comic. Mm. Um, but they did it right. They took something manageable and then gave it the space to breathe, which they didn't really do here, did they? No. There was and so no I think space. actually when I, finally talk you, when I finally talk you into talking about A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, it would be interesting for us to bring this back. And just do a bit of a comparison of the way that good adaptations have worked and bad adaptations have worked. Because I think you'd be really interested to see the difference. Mm. And I think as well, to be fair, a uh, little, little pull behind the curtain, a little behind the scenes. I think at some point when we are going to be making some a bit more additional behind paywall content, I think us covering this novel like me reading the novel would you like i i think we should do that has it wet because i suppose i mean not knowing what the actual and i tried to find out i tried to find out what the actual rationale at the publishers was for making these because i was really interested money money dollar bills y'all and obviously Mm. obviously but whose money i mean this is the question isn't it when you're talking about making money you don't just put a product out and not know who you think is going to buy it they wanted somebody's money. Did they want my money as somebody who loves Pratchett and just went, I just want a Pratchett book with pretty pictures? Or did they want your money as somebody who's never read a Pratchett book before? I th- Which of us were they trying to separate from our hard earned? I think it was more me. Yeah. And I think it was coming from people who might already be into comics somewhat. Yeah. And then saw the Pratchett name, having seen that on like, more famous adaptations and and other things as well so as somebody who doesn't really read books and but does love comics has this been enough to whet your appetite enough to go i wonder what pratchett book is actually like i was actually gonna uh, get into it and i was gonna say i was gonna say yes somewhat yeah so there's there's a, a hard line i think with getting someone to try a medium of fiction or yeah. storytelling or whatever that they don't already there's a very hard like if someone doesn't read books it's 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 harder to drag them over the line of reading a book yeah then someone who already reads some books you go why don't you try this book yeah. you know they're more likely to go i'll try this book someone's like a book oh, i don't know so it's it's definitely i was actually going to round this off in a kind of a a final thoughts kind of way yeah i said at the top this is a bad adaptation yeah, i agree with you but at the same time i think if you're from my position if you're interested in pratchett at all and you still got that not having time for books or not interested in books or whatever i would give this a go because it gives you a flavor of pratchett yeah not the full experience by far but i think there is enough in here that if you already if you saw the name pratchett and that interested you i think this gives you a little bit to further your like mm. to increase your chances of reading a full book i think yeah. it does do that at the very least i don't think that's because of successful adaptation at yeah all. I, agree. I think it's a byproduct of using pratchett's work in any way that's still uh coherent that you go this has actually been pretty interesting and again if you if you read if you look past the standard story 
which is a bit if you can take out a lot of the additional details and elements mm. and it could be just a standard good versus evil yeah. and magic story but if the most interesting part for me was the extra character points and the additional details of the world and the political subplots and everything else and i think it's really noble of them not to go down the good versus evil route because pratchett's stories resist that pratchett resisted that so much in his career so there's a moment in mort which is about death mm. where mort who is death's apprentice noticed the use of the french word for death mm. for mort um says oh it's not fair there's no justice in it and death looks at him and says there's no justice there's just us mm. and it's kind of like his novels always were an exploration of the complicated world that we live in and the fact that it cannot be distilled down to simply good and evil which i know is your bread and butter being a comic book fan, well, a superhero fan that's that's what they trade in isn't mm, it good and evil good that, guys and bad guys that being said and i agree with you to an extent but i also think if assuming that the plot points and the ending and everything they are basically what happens in the novel pretty much yeah so i think the genius of this is it's adding additional layers to the basic good versus evil so i don't know again this is just this one novel this one story but there is a good versus evil that culminates in the end and that is a hallmark i find of great superhero ones yeah so great superhero stories you have your super and your villain but it's the the lazy by the basics is the villain is in the corner or they're watching on monitors or something it's like haha well you just wait until we meet and then we'll see who's what and then they yeah. meet at the end and it's, it was me it was i did it the whole time and then big boss battle and then the guy wins that's the lazy version but the better version and i think another version of this is somewhat secondary but in eight billion genies yeah, yeah. the um the kid and yeah. uh the ideas man yeah they that feels like a really um it feels like a really modern take on a good versus evil because not even modern not even modern it feels like a more in-depth realistic version of good versus evil yeah because it's more protagonist and antagonist and they slowly build up in the same like world and then come to a head naturally. It feels like... Whereas this isn't a story about good versus evil at all. This is a story about complex social forces. When you cut right down to it, it's about powerful groups trying to put their print on the print on the world and other groups who also have power counteracting that. But then I would say because... Nobody's evil here, but no. some, people are, some people are misguided and some people are more pragmatic. I should rephrase. When I say good and evil, I, I'm oversimplifying. I, yeah. I say... I. I mean more protagonist and antagonist. Yeah. And there's that. And then if, if a more simplified version of reading into it is good and evil, because yeah. the good person is whoever the story's about and the evil is whoever's, you know, in their way or the opposite. Forces. Until you talk about Darth Vader and our pro and our protagonist is evil. <laughs> oh, well then you've got, I mean, yeah, that is the protagonist is evil. And that's, and that's been mo- most recently popularized by like Breaking Bad. Yeah. The a literal person becoming the most evil form of themselves but because they were the main character and you followed them along the journey then by the end even though they're doing evil shit you're still rooting for them um so there there is good and evil protagonist and antagonist there is that but it feels like they naturally come to a, a head at the end because it's just the way it had to work out you had one person taking attempting to take power and another person fighting against them but again, it's not good and evil, and it's not a protagonist, not necessarily a protagonist and an antagonist. It's two forces. It's it's a social commentary. 
is what Guards Guards is. At its core, Guards Guards is a social commentary on the way that power is attained and held. Mm. And the way that you manipulate a populace using propaganda, the dragon being propaganda. You know, for the first time, I think, on the podcast, I'm going to say that our opposing viewpoints are both correct. I think they, they both apply. There's, you've got the deeper meaning, 100%. Like, that's all correct, what you've yeah. said. But I also think at the end point, I was rooting for one character to beat the other character. Were you rooting for Vimes and Carrot? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, that's, and it does both. And that's great storytelling. What did you think of Vimes? Like, Isn't it? Because I like Vimes is probably death is my favorite mm. because death is brilliant and so funny. But Vimes is a close second for me. I prefer him to Rincewind. He's probably you know he's up there in terms of um, Pratchett's protagonists. And what you got there was an okay representation of Vimes. Yeah, he really comes into his own towards the end. Yeah, um, I really got the working class hero vibes, yeah. even though it barely touched it beforehand. But I got it more when uh, there's a point where he's still doing what needs to be done despite the situation coming from not doing it. If that, yeah. To put it as much as possible, but he is rising to the challenge, to the call, um, despite the despite the problems and roadblocks. Yeah. Um, so it's that point where I was like, no, no, this this is the main character and he's the guy I'm rooting for. And I you know I'm Did you like him to- as a character? I feel like, again, he was under-presented. Yeah. I liked him by default, because, again, this is why I keep, t- keep touching on the protagonist antagonists. Once I fell into that, you know, I think a lot of it, this sounds like the weirdest tangent, but a lot of it, for me, I learned a lot about protagonists and antagonists from pro wrestling. Because, because <laughs> yeah, that's a, a business predicated on getting over heroes and villains. Yeah. Regardless of good and evil but you know good guys and bad guys it's so interesting because i'm really turned off by anything that has a character who is an antagonist for me that then that then comes into like oversimplified storytelling Mm. because i have an english degree and had to read a lot of really great postmodern novels as a student Mm. and so when i when i'm reading an antagonist my brain naturally wants me to go beyond that and say what's this person representing here what is this book actually about? You know, what, what are the metaphorical resonances here? What is the subtext that I'm looking for? Which is why I just came straight off the top of my head with a subtextual reading of mm. God's Gods, because that's where my brain goes when you give me, if you give me that simplified narrative with, here's a good guy, here's a bad guy, or even here are two opposing forces, one that you root for, one that you don't want to succeed. Mm. I'm looking at that going, what do they represent here? What, you- are we, what, are we, what am I actually being asked to think about when I think about these characters? Mm. And I don't know if that's just because of the way my brain's been trained. I don't know if it's just because I have absorbed a lot of stories. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's because, you know, I did an English degree and then I spent a few years as a librarian where I did nothing but fucking read. Mm. And so I've, my brain just has a lot of stories in it. And so when I'm looking at story, my brain naturally wants to go beyond that surface level. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because I never really consider Pratchett novels as having an antagonist where because often what is happening here is this isn't the case but in a lot of them the protagonist has created some cause of events that they then need to fix Mm. and so the antagonist is actually the protagonist's own hubris right the 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 main character has done something silly and they're trying to fix their problem right yeah and so and that that makes a lot more sense to me in a human sense like some of the best novels are about people fixing their own problems I would or say, problems of their own creation, I should say. Yeah. I would say that 
I reckon, so this is my pure speculation on an entire, not even industry, medium of storytelling. I think the things that are received well, both critically and mainstream, are the ones that do both. Yeah. So the films that critics go, oh, it had all this amazing, deep textual meaning and everything. And the mainstream is like, yeah, it was great. I loved watching the bad, good guy beating the bad guy. Yeah. It's, they do both. And I think also that's, it. I, again, I don't know the rest of the novels, but I feel like if this one is a particular favorite of Pratchett fans, this novel, I feel like the, probably the reason is that there's a bit of an overlap with more casual fans who were just like yeah I, I liked the story of the good guy beating the bad yeah guy. maybe actually yeah and i think but again i think it's if you can do both that's a sign of gr- great storytelling yeah because also how as anyone who's really into any kind of medium comics film tv literature whatever we all know there's those things where it goes a bit too deep and it's only for the the real fans of the medium so mm. like you know if you're a film fan you love citizen kane or yeah. whatever because or like leon or something and it's like you know there's no the the morals are very mixed up and all over the place but you go oh it's a fascinating dissection of the character and exploration of morality but then you get into something like coen brothers films Mm. that actually a dirty casual could quite happily watch the big lebowski and find something really compelling in it but your film nerd's also going to go yeah the big lebowski's cool man like true i this is just pure opinion on my part i think coen Coen Brothers films, I think they're closer to the center than a lot of other loftier stuff, mm. but they're still quite on the side of deep textual meaning. We need to get, we need, to, I need to really get the common man in beside me here to talk about yeah. this stuff, don't I? Because I think like <laughs> Big Lebowski was so, um, so well received, not necessarily because there was a good versus evil storyline, however, but because it was like a fun journey along with this character who we liked. It had a but protagonist. It had a really defined protagonist. But then if you speak to people who just like, who aren't film buffs or film nerds, but just like their films, if you go to the Big Lebowski, they're like, oh yeah, that was a bit of fun, wasn't it? But it doesn't rank because it's not a climactic end battle or anything. Yeah. Whereas um, something like this, I think at first that film adaptation, the casuals would get along with the, oh, when that guy vibes at the end and oh yeah, like yeah, without, without touching on any of the extra stuff. But the best stuff does both. It, it serves both audiences. Yeah. Um, and there's all sorts of like things like that where you go like some film comes out, you go like prime example, and we are going to get into it in a bit. Uh, we recently saw Spider-Verse. Oh, and, I loved it. And that was a bit of both as well. Yeah, it There was, was a deeper yeah. meaning about, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it, we'll get into it. We'll finish off this first. But what I'll say is Spider-Verse is a good example of it doing both. It's yeah. serving both types of fans. So I think we're done talking about Pratchett. That's fair. That's fair. So yeah, like I mentioned earlier, we uh, both saw the no spoilers Spider-Verse film. <laughs> exactly correct. No spoilers. The main thing I think, we both loved it, naturally. And I think the main reason what to bring up is we're not getting to like a, a full-on film review necessarily. Yeah, because that's not our jam. It's being done everywhere else. But I thought it deserved special mention because one of the things I said afterwards, which we both strongly agreed, was that it's the most comic book film I've ever seen in the sense of all the art and everything it's it's the closest to a comic book come to life i thought i don't know um i don't remember having that conversation maybe we were, maybe i was drunk <laughs> I, th- I thought we had it pretty soon afterwards but uh after the film we but... definitely we don't de- i mean i because i've seen a few films with you up and down the years mm. and i know that a film is 
kind of middling when we just kind of leave and go, well, what's, what are we doing next? Are we going for a drink or whatever? Um, but we talked about the film for most of our walk to the bar, didn't we? Um, and yeah, beautifully animated. That's my takeaway from it is that the animation was absolutely fucking gorgeous mm. throughout. And specifically, the reason it felt to me like a comic book come to life was not only was it just one style done well, it was not, and not only was it a bunch of styles done well, these different styles were done so well and they were incorporated into the story, which flowed beautifully. And they looked good together. You'd have two or three different animation styles all in one frame of this film that all looked beautiful. And that that really got me because that's challenging as as an animation house. That must have been really difficult to do and to pull off in the way that they did. Just so special, so good. Yeah, and as I said that's why it's a special mention here because we talk about comic books, and this is literally like if you like comic books, even if you're not superhero um, fan necessarily, this still again it's just an amazing film by itself, but it's also like animation come to life it's its highest form i'd say i think this one should be the comic book film of the year i think if anybody comes away from this and goes well the flash was really good like this is in terms of comic book films that are coming out this year we're only halfway through and i can pretty much say this is going to be the best one yeah exactly i mean it takes something insane to to knock it off but uh but I thought it was worth special mention. Um, beautiful, it's beautiful in every aspect. And again, like I was saying before, it's it's a easy digestible story. I said easily digestible might be a bit much because it's all multiverse and everything. Yeah. But it's a very clear antagonist, protagonist stuff, and there's all deeper meanings as well. In fairness, though, comic book writers for the past ten years have had a huge fucking hard on for the concept of the multiverse. Oh yeah. And so realistically, if you've read a comic book in the past five years then you will have an understanding of what the the concept they're playing with and you won't struggle to follow it. Well, I think... Um, I mean, re- re- let, let, you know, really cutting down to it, it's a story about um, the, the self and one's kind of battle with their conception of their self and their place in the world and a little bit of an unrequited love story. Th- those are the two things, th- those are the two key themes that are really happen- happening here. It's a character trying to find his place in a larger world and an unrequited love story. And there is nothing wrong with that. That's all mm. good, fu- good, clean fun as far as I'm concerned. And what's interesting, especially as well, is um, that when uh, you mentioned about the multiverse, the thing about the multiverse is they've been doing that in comics for like decades already. And what I think has happened is they've done so much co- like superhero stuff in films. They've gone, you know what? I think we can start to do multiverse stuff and people will get it. Like people will understand, but they, it was like a breaking the damn moment when everyone went, you know what? I think everyone's going to get it. And then suddenly everyone started doing multiverse stuff at the same time. But if you're looking for good multiverse stuff, I think the best ones right now are both Spider-Man, the, both the Spider-Man films and everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once. Those are like your prime ones. Also just the first season of Rick and Morty. (laughs) Yeah, Let's I mean be Frank here. Um, I know, I know. Rick and Morty. I mean, later seasons weren't as good, and I think the fans kind of spoiled it for the rest of us, the super fans, people fucking jumping on McDonald's um, counters, demanding Szechuan sauce, kind of ruined it. Yeah, those uh, guys sucked. But actually, early Rick and Morty stuff's really good, really interesting, and it's a great representation of that trope in fiction. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and 
Following on from that, uh, we are vindication, motherfuckers. Touching a bit back on. Well, so the thing is, if you tuned into last week's episode, and if you haven't, I would highly recommend listening to it before before listening to this part of this week's episode. Yeah, this yeah. part of this. I wasn't episode. a very happy boy, was I? No, and that's that's for other reasons, which will be a scheduling thing we'll deal with later on but also doing the two superhero comics on the on the trot obviously definitely didn't help well the fact that the second one was real big bad <laughs> yeah but the thing is i've kept on i've kept reading it um i kept following on for it because the the five issues we covered i said i thought it was a nice representation of spider-man doing his street crime fighting thing and i glossed over some of the 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 obvious criticisms of the art you had um because i was just i was enjoying the story it was a nice change of pace because i've i've stopped reading spider-man for being so repeating itself yeah, and yeah. bland and middle of the road so for this to be just a bit nice i was like oh great like finally the the character i like is being written in an interesting way i kept following the series and it has turned into the biggest pile of shit i have dealt with in reading a spider-man comic to the point where i think i might go back off reading spider-man comics again but tell you what again if the story was good and this is me finding out my own kind of bias here in yeah. comics generally if i'm enjoying the story i will not even know it's bad art like that's the thing i've discovered about myself and i was actually listening back through old episodes recently and you straight up say that in episode one you're like i don't mm. look at the art i read the stories yeah but now but now i know that i i will literally have blind sides two blind yeah. spots for bad art like i i didn't know it went to that extent yeah now i know that about myself but what i've also discovered about myself is when i turn on the story for being so she then i start to notice the bad yeah. art even more so and i think this is something that we knew was inherent in our different processes just in the fact that you are somebody who enjoys this stuff recreationally and realistically, I'm here as a I'm I'm here to do more of the heavy lifting for that critical analysis. Yeah. That's kind of the reason that you reached out to me to make the podcast in the first place is you thought those conflicting perspectives would be interesting. Yeah. And so it makes sense that I would be the guy who's going, Yeah, but have you seen the artwork? Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense that I would be that person, doesn't it? Of course. Now I'm gonna tell you exactly what my biggest gripes were with oh, this Spider-Man comic. We've not, you've not let, you've not talked to me about this yet. No. So I was saving it for this, and tell you what, if I already had Comic Stand launched, this would be like prime right, video okay. fodder. But right now, this is my my outlet. This is for your it. main outlet. <laughs> so we get yeah. it here, baby. So I'm gonna go a little bit right. So I picked up the reason I picked up in the first place was there was a tweet from I believe i think it was nick lowe who was yeah. the editor of of um of spider-man what's going on with the, all the spider-man comics right now and i'm pretty sure i'll tell you what i'll see if i can bring up just just so i can at least quote you know the the quote it correctly without you know putting anyone's whatever in that you know um, nose out of shape yeah exactly so uh, did you see what i did there oh uh, no so i was i was googling why yeah uh, do you want to repeat it for me or I'll, I'll listen back in the edit? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll have a good little laugh. It's like, oh, that was funny. Um, so he's, he proud tweet where he said, this, the issues were always already ongoing and I wasn't reading at this point. A proud tweet saying, oh, I think people are going to kind of hate me for what I'm about to do in this next issue coming up. And you told me this. Yeah. And that was enough for me to be like, all right, you know what? I, I, it's a bit of a gimmick. It's a bit of a ploy to get people to read, but I'll, I'll take the bait and I'll see what's going on. So I picked up the first couple of issues and it was enough that I was like, you know what? I was actually expecting bad 
And this is actually not bad. I think mm. because I went in with low expectations, I was like, you know what? They write his quips. Spider-Man's quips are very good in this. They're, they're good enough. They're not over the top. And it's it was a nice read for a Spider-Man comic. So I kept going. And I tell you what, up to for 10 issues, I think I was like, this is good stuff. I'm enjoying it. I'm following along. And then it, I'm building up to a spoiler that I already knew. So again, if you don't want any spoilers for the current Amazing Spider-Man that's coming out, then stop listening now. But I already was gearing up for this spoiler, which I'm sure you don't care about. I can give a fuck. But I already knew the thing he was referring to was that they were killing off a character, Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, right? Yeah. And again, I thought, oh, that's a bit odd because, you know, she's got her own stuff and she's in a Spider-Man comic. So I'm reading a lot. dying in a Spider-Man exactly, comic. Exactly, well. yeah. And it, um, again, I, he... he he put the tweet about oh it's um people are gonna hate me it's like the comic book characters die every week like it's it's not a big deal anymore. and they come back to life <laughs> exactly that's that's why it doesn't matter anymore not re- not really so i thought well let's see how it goes so i'm reading along and it gets to this crossover point of the comic called dark web and crossover things for comics dark that, web yeah that's the most so generic bad. name yeah. and crossover t- things for titles are always super generic yeah really generic and if you're enjoying the story the crossover just kind of puts a halt to it for a bit and you're like yeah no like i I can't be asked to read the other tie-ins or whatever like we we had it with the darth vader comic didn't we and that to be fair wasn't too bad i actually that i actually enjoyed that felt like a natural continuation story with some added uh perspectives of other characters yeah this was so fucking bad (laughs) they bring back a character uh ben riley who is basically the cloned Peter Parker. So he's the product of the very controversial, and by controversial, co- by controversial, I mean most people didn't fucking like it, was the Clone Wars saga. Right. They literally spent months, almost a year, not knowing who they wanted to make the original Spider-Man, the Peter Parker or this new one, Ben Riley. They didn't know for ages, so it just kept going aimlessly without like a, without like a, point to settle on and yeah. eventually just went oh peter parker's original ben riley's the clone and everyone was just like thank god this is done like we don't even care anymore so they brought back this character and they brought him back and fair enough like using characters again is you know there's a it's benefit a to it, but they bring him back to once again be pissed off at peter parker for being the real one and making him feel like a clone which is literally what they do every Literally every time they bring him back, it's some version of, oh, bloody hell, Peter Parker, if it wasn't for you, I'd, I'd have a real life. And it's like, mate, you don't do anything else. And last time he was brought back as the Jackal, because that was the character who cloned him originally, and then he became the new Jackal. But then he fucked off and became Scarlet Spider again. And now you brought him back, and now he's called Chasm for some reason. And he's like a otherworldly, underworld version of Spider-Man, and he's teaming up with demons. And again, the same fucking... You know in How I Met Your Mother, mm. when a female character is talking to Barney and he's looking at her boobs and he just hears... Burr, 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 this is you burr. now, yeah. That is, honestly, when you, when, when you get like deep into like comic book shenanigans, that is all I hear because there's just too many characters for me. Like, oh, yeah. It's like, oh, there's this guy who's... There's, it's like, there's this guy, um, Stephen Sells, who is the sex pest, but he came back as the jackal and now he is a feminist. And I'm like, I don't know any of what's going on right now. And I, I should say, the, the the way I'm telling it is intentionally Oh, like, mate, you are just like, what bollocks. the fuck is this bollocks? It's all bollocks. So this whole part I skipped over anyway. Yeah. I, I, as soon as I recognized what was going on <laughs> and the character, I was like, I'm skipping these issues. You they didn't don't, even they don't read it and it still annoyed no. you. <laughs> so 
So then I get to the part where they explain the whole thing that happened with him and MJ yeah. and all the other superheroes. So so why why is Parker why is Peter Parker not with MJ? Because that was the one yeah. question I had. So this new villain turns up and Peter and MJ I'm like, oh no, it's him again. So it's you know, like, oh, we're now gonna find out what happened. Yeah. And she's like, quick, get the kids and Paul or Pete, I think his name is, the other, the new husband or whatever. Like, quick, get them away and we'll sort this guy out. And then he goes, and, yo, two years ago, we go back to what happened. And so basically, Peter and MJ are about to move in together. Yeah. And then this guy turns up. He's like, I need to kill Mary Jane and uh, sacrifice her to my God so I can become all powerful. Nice. And Spider-Man's like... Ah, you bastard. And then they get transported into this other world with this where this god rules or whatever. <laughs> and fucking comic books, man. No, I know. And what the worst part about this is this was what they were building up to. <laughs> this was the big reveal. And it was just a new <laughs> just a new <laughs> weekly run of the mill villain. Uh, comic who they're trying to they're trying to get over by being like, Oh my god, he did all this before, so he must be a big deal. And it's like a god who's exists in evil cthulhu kind of god who exists in a world where there's like symbology is the magic and like symbols are how magic is used and stuff again so doctor strange stuff but never that's not been touched on before and now you're just immediately (laughs) immediately thrown into it to be like you need to care about this um, right away and so what happens is (laughs) it's just how upset you are and it doesn't end there. <laughs> it gets worse. It gets worse. <laughs> so they are stuck in this world and they meet the guy who beca- who we who later becomes Mary Jane's husband. Right. right so yeah. he's in this world. Um and then Cthulhu World. Yeah, basically. <laughs> destroyed Cthulhu World or whatever. And then they he says we that he needs to kill Spider-Man to become all powerful. Right. So we need to get you out of here. So he doesn't become all powerful. And Spider-Man's like, well, I'm not leaving MJ behind and, you know, normal shtick. And then they get into a fight and there comes to a point where M- they've got this device to get them back and the god is about to kill Spider-Man. So MJ sends Spider-Man back. So he, by himself. So she's stuck there. He goes back. And so he, she lives and falls in love with the dude. Essentially. So he re- Spider-Man realizes when he gets back that they were there for like a week, but he was only gone a day. So there's time dilation. So he needs to get back to MJ as quickly as possible. What happens next is Spider-Man trying to get the technology to get back to MJ. Yeah. And he tries to get the Fantastic Four's help. And the Fantastic Four are like, yes, we will help you, but we need to do things properly. Because <laughs> there's like a, we need to like, we, we can't you- just give you like a nuclear reactor. Like we have to like, there's some, some other s- extra steps. In we it. need you to do some side no, quests. No, not even that. It's just literally like, <laughs> not even that. It's literally just, we just need, we can't give it to you immediately. We just need a bit of time. But the problem, here's the problem is Spider-Man, instead of going, hey, MJ stuck in a time dilated world and we need to act as quickly as possible. He just steals the shit from the, from the Fantastic Four. Captain America gets involved <laughs> And it's like, hey, I need you to calm the fuck down for a minute. We want to help you. And Spider-Man, rather than taking the seconds to be like, MJ stuck in a time-dilated world, we need to act now or she will die, chooses to fight Captain America instead. This is literally a, there's no time to explain, but I am going to fight you for several pages. Like, the laziest fucking storytelling. Like, 
that just I shouldn't be surprised by, but I, I was hooked in. <laughs> and then, no, this is fucking. I don't know who fucking planned all this shit out or wrote the oh, shit. I, there, there are names fuck. attached, but I don't know who actually decided what. The, but, wait, I don't want to dignify them. No, exactly. Um, but then, so he goes back. <laughs> but then, he there's go- more. There's more. He goes back. <laughs> And he saves MJ and they escape the god or whatever. <laughs> and they go back. Yeah. But now we're in the present. And as you say, MJ's like, no, me and this other guy were actually in love now and yeah. all that bollocks. And they found these kids and whatever. Then the god has come back in the present day. So that's where we started this whole thing. Right. And they're like, now he's like, I did need Spider-Man before, but now I need Mary Jane for some reason. And once I kill her, then I'll be all powerful. Then, so coming to the crux of it kamala khan has been a side character very little presence <laughs> she's working at oscorp so the person that we're upset about yeah yeah we're getting she's she was an intern for oscorp watching over norman osborne yeah. which kind of makes it makes sense but in terms of like marvel comics <laughs> you're taking one of your most popular characters um, unless there's something I don't know and sales have gone bad for or something, you're taking one of your most popular characters and you're having as a side character, a minimal side character, who suddenly is like, by the way, I'm Ms. Marvel, so all this shit's going on, I can help out, yeah. along with Fantastic Four and Captain America, whoever. So Kamala Khan is, Peter's like, hey, you take Mary Jane and look after her while we try and sort this out. And then they're running off and the god comes after the guy, he's emissary or whatever. He's I run after them so they split up and you go oh no don't do that and then the god finds mary jane and then he stabs her with his knife or whatever kills her and then he's like ah see i've sacrificed her so give me all the power and then his god's like you fucking idiot that wasn't mary jane i'm gonna kill you instead and then the reveal is that it was kamala khan had made herself using her powers look like uh, mary jane okay. so heroic sacrificial switcheroo. you know heroic sacrificial death and everything but you've killed off a major character like for a fight that she joined like for five minutes <laughs> and is surrounded by barely any of her friends. <laughs> you've established she's a part of a group called the Champions with fucking Miles Morales is a good friend of hers and Vision's daughter and Comic Young Nova. Shenanigans. Yeah, she's got a team. She's got her own oh, family, but she me. dies around... Peter Parker, Spider-Man for some reason, and the Fantastic of... Four, who were just like, oh, I'm a bit sad. Who's that again? Like, like a bunch of dudes she doesn't know. Yeah, exactly. And it's just so dumb. And again, the whole reason I picked up in the first place, the tweet was like, people are going to be a bit mad at me because I, you uh, know, clearly... spoiler alert, kill Kamala Khan. It's like, no, because you did it in the worst fucking way possible. In fairness, he's right. No, but he he's <laughs> he thinks he's going to get the same flack for like, oh, we killed Superman because he fought... Uh, Fucking what's his name? Uh, anger's forgetting, making me forget. Um, so do, when Doomsday killed Superman, yeah, that was a big like. Even though Superman beat Doomsday, it was like the 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 point was this new character. He was a new character, even though he has technically been beaten, has pushed Superman to his limits. Yeah, and Superman has died and came back a few issues later or whatever. But in this, the it was a guy killing Kamala Khan in disguise as Mary Jane with a knife and it's Kamala Khan would normally be fine but she's like oh wait a minute like as she's dying like oh wait that knife was like 
different technology and I'm actually <laughs> dying now. Literally, that I'm, I'm ad-libbing that's like a bit from the comic. Like, oh, actually, that knife was like, that knife was like super knife and it's <laughs> in magic enchantment or whatever. It was a magical MacGuffin yes. the whole time. And actually, I'm dead now. <laughs> so I'm going to be honest with you, right? Mm. I wrote a D&D campaign in an hour to run for a bunch of kids the other day. And my story was better than that. Most stories are better than... <laughs> and you know what? It, what it really got across to me was stop... In, unless there's like an amazing writer who's been given fucking carte blanche to do whatever they want. And, stop reading superhero comics, bro. Well, I need to... I, I, I want to talk about this. I want to I criticize them because... The problem is, is when you, this is the whole thing, like people who, you know, reviewers and all that. And I don't, I don't consider myself a reviewer by any stretch, but the point is that they love the medium so much that they feel the need to point out when it's being done badly. Yeah. And that's me. Like I, I, again, those first like 10 issues, I was like a kid rediscovering Spider-Man. Really? And I was like, this yeah. is nice. Like uh, he's web swinging, he's saving the day, he's quippy and he's funny and you know, oh, it's good. And then they, they just get into all this bollocks of like he's a new villain he's from a new world there's a new magic and it's like <laughs> i don't care you've not given me any time to care about any of this and they did the same thing a oh, while ago they introduced fuck. this new villain who was like behind the scenes for like a year like manipulating stuff and like bringing people back from the den and all that and then in the final fight it's like by the way i'm harry osborne and you're like all right and he's like and I'm, i've been beaten now and this is they uh, they they constantly need to churn out content and it's at the detriment of quality storytelling. Yeah, that is, that is ultimate. 100%. And I, with my soon-to-launch Comic Stand channel, I will call it out every time. And I'll say, I read these because I love superheroes and superhero stories. I will call out when they're being taken advantage of by bad storytelling. And I yeah. don't want to say bad storytellers, because I, I don't think they want to write these stories as they well, are. These but... people wouldn't be in the position be able to write stories for Marvel and DC unless they unless they had some portfolio of work that proved they could tell a story right exactly yeah and i and, and yeah and, and and this i mean when we speak ill of a comic book don't think we're necessarily talking shit about the writer it's the machine that turns this stuff out it's the it's the it's the corporation with which they exist in that determines the quality of the stuff they're making because ultimately there is an editorial team who are deciding what gets put out and it feels that they're resistant to anything interesting and you know that's fine i mean again these are pulpy inky comic books for children that is what they are um and i've said this many times and i suppose it's again it's which garbage you get hooked on isn't it yeah i i think ultimately one one point I was going to make as well, if you're if you're stuck with me, listeners, through all this bollocks ranting, the one thing is these this title was written by a guy called Zeb Wells, and I if I was just being critical and negatively um, negatively talking about him, I wouldn't mention him. But I realised today he wrote another comic recently, a couple of years ago, that I really enjoyed. It's a, a comic line called Hellions. Yeah, it's part of the X Men one, which I've been singing the Banging praises on about of to me. Yeah, yeah. And what it is, it's a low stakes, funny, like odd couple, like it's, but it's a group, like it's kind of like Breakfast Club Misfits yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And it's just, and one of the characters, a guy called Mr. Sinister 
is one of my favorites now and zeb writes him really well where he's like evil but camp and overly dramatic and funny and like funny in a way was like being a bastard but he's also like a bit of a scamp kind of like he he nailed this tone of this comic like Hans zimmer yeah sure and i just i want to make get across the point of like i enjoyed he's the guy who does the music i mean the nazi from inglorious bastards played by christoph waltz yeah i can't remember the name but um bonjourno you know that the guy who was that's a bingo that one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. like that guy yeah he's an absolute dickhead but he's very funny yes exactly uh mr sinister is a great character to to see get his comeuppance because he always has that indignant rage of like i didn't do anything wrong like, you're like you're the bad guy of the comic like come on like but he's that you know he's bullshitting but he just has to get across like hang on why am i being punished here like so zed wells writes that kind of stuff really well and when when the his times were used very well i enjoyed it again a hundred times we've come up against something bad and then we found out that somebody who was involved in it was also involved in something that we really liked and then we've seen things that we've really liked and we've looked up what the people are involved in and there's something there's a stinker Mm. it's a it's a hit or miss medium it's yeah. really hit or miss but one thing i will end on is someone decided to use the death of kamala khan as a boost for a fledging spider-man yeah. title essentially and i think i'm not even like i'm not even the, the biggest ms marvel fan like i've read some of her stuff and i like some of her stuff but i, I wouldn't class it as necessarily one of my favorites but i feel like there's a lot of people who she means a lot to. Miss Marvel's different to Captain Marvel, right? Yeah, so Ms. Marvel is Kamala Khan. I believe she's a Muslim. She's one of the first like Muslim Marvel oh, cool. superheroes. Cool. Um from Jersey. Um and but <laughs> she's, she's from Jersey. Yeah. It's actually all set in Jersey as well. <laughs> so she represents Can you give me a can you give me a seminal Miss Marvel comic to read at some point? Because that sounds brilliant. We'll do what there, there's some good ones. I've definitely read some some great Ms. Marvel. I think we might need to hold I think there's I actually... think I think for our ability to continue working together, we might need to hold off on superhero stuff for a hot minute. Yeah. There's um <laughs> considering how heated it got during Spider-Man week. Yeah. And there's um there's a the Marvel's film coming out at some point yeah, so yeah. we'll do that as a tie-in for that or cool. something but the main point is there's a lot of people who care about this character and she's just been thrown away like it's not even it's not that you killed her it's that you unceremoniously killed her for another comic and it just yeah uh, i'm gonna end on that because i can't no. articulate thank you so much for listening <laughs> thank you for sticking around to the end of this i hope you've had a wonderful time you'd like to leave us a review just wherever you're listening to the podcast just stick a review on if you want to put a comment somewhere um make it as cantankerous as you can and i might read it out and again i've mentioned this twice but if you'd like to send us an email telling us what you thought of the podcast you can send that to comicliterate at gmail.com and if you if you're a diehard spider-man fan and hate everything i've said uh you're wrong so you're wrong but tell us tell, <laughs> tell us, us why. why tell, tell us, us why you think you're right yes uh, i would be interested to hear that bye goodbye <laughs>